Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. As we embrace the sustained joy of the Easter season, we invite you to join us every week on this show where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We're also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and this week, as in every week, we've tried to put together a great show for you. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Kirk. She is a research associate at the Columbus School of Law at Catholic University of America, and she has wonderful insights on adoption and foster care. This is uh, Foster Care and Adoption Month, the month of May, also the month of Mary. Uh, So that's a wonderful combination for us Catholics. Before that, we're going to talk to Patrick Travers and Father Remy, who work at the Newman Center at the University of Pennsylvania, and they are going to share some insights with us about evangelizing um, our college youth, something that's very important to me and I'm sure to many of our listeners. I'd like to introduce a friend of mine. His name is Patrick Travers, and he's the director of the Newman Center for the University of Pennsylvania and Drexel in Philadelphia. He does great work helping students on campus, and it's been a tough year for everyone, including the Newman Centers all over the country. Patrick is also a consecrated layman of the Society of the Sodality of Christian Life. Uh, he spent 10 years in Peru during his initial formation, so his Spanish is perfect, as I happen to know, and also he has a very unique perspective. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you, Dr. Gracie. It's wonderful to be here. <laughs> you know, I packed a lot into that th- those first few sentences, uh, but yeah. but I have to tell our listeners that you are a friend of mine because my I have a son at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a junior, not for much longer, and he has received tremendous support and formation from the Newman Center, from you and your other uh, companions there. And this is an experience that many many college students across the country. Uh, have the blessing to to experience. Yeah, Luki is a, a wonderful young man. We're we're very blessed to have him a part of our growing community and, and a growing Latino community as well. And he's part of one of our, our groups that's led by our assistant chaplain, Father Remy. And there's a lot of students like him that um, it's it's really a blessing to be to be a part of of a ministry that's such a critical time in people's lives. Uh, many young people, you know, find the faith, um, probably have been, been raised, you know, with, with good values, Catholic education and whatnot. But eventually when they do leave home and go off to college, uh, it's kind of a critical period when it's kind of make or break, you know, for a lot of people if they, they do decide to embrace the faith. And those that do end up discovering, you know, something that's life-giving and, and actually leading them, you know, uh, to want to give of themselves for others. So we're, we're really... Uh, feel privileged to be in that place to to minister to them. And do you feel that these Newman centers are uh, they are? Do you think they're 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 key to to keeping uh, the the faith in some of these students? I mean, what why not just a a regular parish uh, for for college students? Why a Newman center in, in particular? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I you know I know when I first started here about four years ago, I've been a brother for about fourteen years, but the last four of which have been here at the, the Newman Center, um, there was kind of a narrative that uh, would float around with all other campus ministers that I would talk to. And you'll hear it a lot amongst, uh, you know, adult Catholics in general, which is how many young people are leaving the faith. And it is true, you know, that the statistics, like the, the Pew Research shows that of the people that leave the faith, 80% do so between the ages of 18 and 23 and uh, we're also well aware of how many catholics are out on our college campuses and it's much more than the number that are coming to mass so it is clear that you know uh it, it's a time where, where some people do move away from the faith and perhaps you know they've many of whom have gone to mass with their parents growing up they've had perhaps catholic education growing up there's a lot of resources um, before that time but when you're when you leave home and you go off to a place where you don't know anybody um, it's a very intimidating time and you're, you're trying to figure out who you are and a lot of things about life. 
So it's really essential to have kind of a critical mass of, of a community of people that, that are able to come together and celebrate the faith. And it's kind of a unique experience to have, you know, you, you never have it beforehand and you'll probably never have it again once you leave college where there's so many young people that are living the faith and they're all of the same age and at the same stage of life as you. And so when there is that critical mass, it becomes a very attractive thing to invite people into. Uh, we do see that, um, you know, if, if you don't have a friend to go to mass with, it becomes much more difficult. Uh, they, they, we, we work with focused missionaries here on our campuses, and we know how important it is to, to reach out to students and not just wait for them to come to us. And they, they have a lot of statistics that they share with us. And they say that uh, most college freshmen make their friend group in the first 72 hours that they're on campuses. And if we're, you're not there in those 72 hours uh, present and making friends with, with them at the same time, it becomes that much more difficult to kind of try to, to attract them in later on. So we are that first week when, when freshmen are arriving to campuses, places like ours or others around the country, invest a lot of time and resources to try to be at, you know, outreach events and, and allow for people to get to know the community right when they step on the campus. I know that you do something that is very effective with, with young people. You offer them food. I know this because my son, um, I think what my, I think my husband is the one who dropped off our son at college when he started three years ago. And he, uh, he did take him like we do with all our children. We, we, what we have done with our children, we take him to college and we bring them to the local the church, the local Newman Center, as there has always been one on campus, and uh, we intro we make sure he meets the priest. I think he was right away invited to a chicken parm dinner that uh, first week, and I, I'm pretty sure he attended, and it's been smooth sailing ever since. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, uh, a nice home cooked meal uh, for college students that are you know uh, not they don't have a lot of cash, and and you know. To have a nice warm meal is not always, you know, a luxury. It is a luxury. So being able to offer that, we're blessed to have a, a grant that is able to, to support uh, those, we call them Newman dinners. And they, they're a great kind of first foot in the door. You know, ultimately the faith is going to be fostered in, in small groups and, and, you know, groups of friends and having people that are able to kind of like minister to them. So yeah, Lukey, you know, first came to a chicken farm dinner, but, then was quickly invited to join, you know, our Latino small group where, you know, he, he comes there and, and gets to grow in friendship and deepen in his faith together with others. Um, but if it's not for that first moment, a lot of people, it's too intimidating to go straight to a Bible study or something like that. Sure. Um, so yeah, we, we use what, what resources we have to, you know, attract people in and, and that food is, is present at most of our activities. So. One thing that my son has told me consistently over the last three years that he's been at Penn is that he finds uh, his friendships with you, the, with with the priests, with the other with the other people who who work at the Newman Center, but also with the students who meet there. He finds them a source of of comfort in a time when when his uh, his way of looking at the world, which is the way his father and I taught him. Um, is sometimes not respected in all sorts of different classes. He, there's a lot of pushback against traditional and conservative and religious uh, worldviews at college. Uh, pretty much it's something you can't even mention in most forums. And so he feels that's a safe haven for him to be his authentic self. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, well, I, I will certainly affirm that college campuses today are um, a very challenging place for our young people. And you know, they, they are constantly, you know, especially some of our Christian values are, are not so well accepted or, or they don't, they don't have a place to be expressed, you know? And so what oftentimes will happen is people will just not uh, share their, their, their opinions or their feelings about things. So I do think that, yeah, being able to have a place where you can come and hopefully, you know, it's, it's a wide open space where people of different viewpoints are able to share those. It's not that we're, we're looking to have an echo chamber here of, uh, You know, we think that the, the treasure of the richness of the Catholic faith has answers for all of life's questions. And we hope that in them coming, you know, at a place where they can also do it with friendship and not just, you know, like be a political debate or something like that. Work, work through some of these difficult things. And, you know, I think that there can be a challenge then to say, you know, to, to encourage them to like not just be able to do it at a Newman Center, also be able to take that out, you know, but 
you know, we, we also recognize that it is, you know, it's a very challenging place. It's sometimes not impossible to, you know, it's not like you're going to be able to go challenge a professor necessarily, or you risk, you know, getting an F on, in your class or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that my son has told me is that he really likes to, to bring friends to the Newman Center, friends that he knows sometimes are struggling with something in, in their in their life or just feeling lonely or he, friends that he knows that uh, miss the spirituality and the religion uh, that they left at home. Do you, do you find that, that kids uh, bring friends and that this is a very good form of apostolate for them? For sure, they they are the the real ones on the front line. You know, the the priests and brothers that that we help lead, and even the focused missionaries who are, you know, these recent college grads. Um, you know, we do our best, but like the most effective evangelizers are the people, are the friends. You know, that being being actually there. And I do think, yeah, like sometimes that can be intimidating. But when someone has found, you know, the richness of the Christian faith, uh, I, I have found this with my work with you know, American youth is you don't have to convince them that they can make a difference and that their life is worth something. So most of them are eager to, to invite friends in, especially if they feel like, you know, they're, they're going to be inviting them into something that's going to be life giving. So, uh, we've actually in the last couple of weeks, we have had some friends that they're bringing a lot of Protestant friends that are just curious, you know, that it's one of the, the interesting, you know, things of being at a, such a multicultural place is, uh, you know, there's actually a lot of openness and curiosity to explore, you know, and even with the, you know, some of the difficulties the church has had in, in the, the last 50 years, like we have a number of people that are drawn in because of the beauty, because of the, the goodness, you know, and, and looking for answers in, in, a, in a time where, you know, maybe the relativism has left, you know, a lot of people searching for answers. Like, you know, there, if, if, if there's a place that has, you know, light and wisdom, like people do actually look that out. Mm-hmm. You know, being young, that time of, of, of life is a very idealistic time. And, and I think that we shortchange our young people if we don't, if we don't give them um, places to, to, you know, dream up noble aspirations and see the good and the beautiful, right? Right. Yeah, and I mean, one of the other challenges maybe, and for, for, for Luki it applies as well, is it's not easy to find authentic friendship on college campuses. The, mm. You know, it can be a hostile place in that sense, you know, and it's it's all about competing against your colleagues or maybe just like moving up the social, you know, scale of, of partying and things like that. So, you know, being able to have a place where you, you can come and invite your friends, uh, that's a, a real value. And by the way, Father Remy, one of our friends, uh, just finished Mass and is able to join us. He's on the call here as well. Gracie. Hello. Oh, hello, Father Remy. One moment, Father Remy. Let me remind our listeners that we uh, they're just joining us. They're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're speaking with Patrick Travers, who's the director of the Newman Center for the University of Pennsylvania and Drexel in Philadelphia. And now we've just been joined by Father Remy, who is the co-pastor, I think, at the Newman Center. Is that true, Father Remy? Yeah, that's true. I help the pastor and the assistant, yeah. Well, I, I happen to know both uh, you, Father Remy, I, uh, and Patrick, because as I had we had talked about earlier in the show, my son is a, a frequenter of the Newman Center and has, has benefited greatly from your your spiritual advice, your friendship, and uh, all the, the instruction that you've been able to give him in these years that are so formative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we try to encourage a lot authentic friendship. That's the first, like the first stage to engage with the people, with the students, and then gradually the divine intimacy. Yeah, like getting closer to Jesus in the sacraments, in prayer, to finally be able to feel that they have to share this beauty, the gospel, with their friends, with their peers. It's a whole problem. And what has been the most rewarding thing for you, Father, uh, working at the Newman Center? Mm. For me, I mean, coming from Peru, I came four years ago from Peru. But the thing that I love the most is the feeling of Catholicism here, that universality of the church, a multiculturality. Mm-hmm. Because Penn draws here people from all countries and all continents, all different languages and backgrounds. That is beautiful. You feel that real Catholic church here. At the same time, the students are ambitious, uh, more humanly, not spiritually necessarily but that awakening of a greater ambition like spiritual goal starts to yeah to wake up and that is beautiful to see that they can they want to become holy they want to serve humanity now they don't want to be yeah, the, 
Brexit is something necessarily, I mean, if they do that, they're going to do it on behalf of others, for the good of others, no? So that's something very important. Oh, that's beautiful. So you think you're, you're when you when you're able to uh, interact with these students and and have an influence on them, you're able to take their their material uh, ambition and turn it into something better and more spiritual. Exactly. So they see themselves as leaders who, in the eyes of Christ, become servants of others, and that is that's a whole change, a radical change in the heart of the person. So all the older talents, because they are very gifted, very skilled, very gifted people, are going to be used on the good for the good of others with humility, with charity, and that is a whole change, a radical change. It sounds like a, you're doing a service for the whole country, for mankind, uh, taking students that are at such a high level of um, accomplishment at a, at a university like the University of Pennsylvania, and then be, uh, teaching them to redirect their energies towards the common good and, and the glory of God. Mm -hmm, exactly. It's a whole understanding of, of freedom and power in a different sense, not because, yeah, they might be able to, to have power in the future, to have authority roles. But what is your idea of power? You know? So Jesus is teaching us that true power is love. The true power is serving, service. So, I mean, one of the most important spaces where they can experience that is the liturgy, mm -hmm. the man, adoration, confession. When they come and become humble, they come and receive all from God. That is a new, a new lens, a new perspective. And they come freely. They don't come because mom and dad are pushing them. Mm -hmm. What do you find is your greatest challenge when you, when somebody shows up for one of the, the, the chicken parm dinners and, and you see someone who you can, you can see is thirsting for more? What's your biggest challenge in breaking through to that, to that thirst and giving them what, what they need? I mean, the first thing I, I think is not on the challenge, it's not on the obstacle. I, I just see some eyes that are longing, thirsty for communion. Definitely they want friendship connection because they have ambition, as we say, but they are longing for connection. And for true friendship, because the friendship that they find in the fraternities or sororities is not necessarily mm -hmm. something that they want. So immediately I think of uh, building a bridge. Maybe this guy likes arts, likes music, likes sport, soccer, whatever. So how to connect with that, with that area of joy? And then, yeah, that's the first thing I usually think about. Well, one of the things, Gracie, in working with these the focused missionaries, their experience has shown that they, they call it seven significant encounters before they invite someone to join uh, a small group Bible study that, you know, their, you know, research has shown that like, if you precipitate it too quickly, which can be our, our natural tendency to meet a new person, Hey, come to my, my Bible study. Uh, oftentimes it, it is not, you know, so long and successful, but if you find these other touch points, even if it's like, you know, going after mass, just a, a five minute conversation or going to get a coffee or going to play soccer or chicken farm dinner, uh, you wait, you know, a little bit, then it's more mature, you know, to be able to connect to that, that more, that long-term sustaining thing. Those, those are tools for evangelization that I think all our listeners can, can take into account, right? Because it, it is true that you need to form a real human connection before you can, you can expect to, to open uh, a soul or to help a soul come to Christ. Definitely. Yeah. That's the method of Jesus. It must have been very hard for the Newman Center during the pandemic. I know my son came home, uh, but uh, and then when when he went back for some time, it was very everything was very shut down on campus. Everything was very cold, even like uh, morally, like spiritually cold. <laughs> Nobody could get together or make any real connections. How did you guys manage during the new during the pandemic? I think. Look, the uh, it it has not been you know ideal. Right now, we're in that evaluation period, trying to like figure out what just happened this last year. <laughs> but uh, I mean, we still feel extremely blessed. Like the the numbers are down, you know, at, at the the masses. You know, even even though we're back to public masses, uh, and they're slightly down with like number of people participating in small groups, but they're still really high. I mean, there there's uh, we had you know we used to have about two hundred and fifty. Uh, students participate in weekly small small groups, so it's down to about 200. But that I think has been that's a, a huge win because all of those people have had to stay connected mainly through virtual ways through this whole time. You know, so we're looking forward to the coming out of that. But uh, you know, I think that one of the things that we're just very aware of is 
the the isolation, the loneliness, the the difficulty that students are under, and uh, you know, even though it's it's a virtual way, at least finding a way to kind of stay connected, have that uh, you know sense of, of belonging, of friendship, is something that that's extremely valuable. And uh, and yeah, sometimes yeah, you, you, we're used to being able to see that person coming out of mass, you know, or uh, something like that. That we've lost some of those touch points with people, so. We've, you know, tried to adapt in, in different ways to stay kind of active and vibrant. And uh, having, you know, a, a large uh, ministry team is a, a big benefit that not everybody has. You know, uh, being able to support Newman centers like ourselves is extremely important so that you can have the people to, to minister and reach out and whatnot. I'm glad you brought up that word support because as, as I'm listening to you talk and I'm sure as our listeners are listening to you, they're thinking, wow, what a tremendous... What a tremendously important uh, work this is to to help our, our children as we, we send them off to college and, and we hope that they are able to keep in their hearts all the things that we taught them, all the things that the church taught them, their connection with Jesus as, a, as a, their friendship with, with, with our Lord. How can people support their local Newman Center or uh, any Newman Center? Because I know that you live from hand to mouth, I'm pretty sure, at the, at the Newman Center. Right. No, for sure. For, we, we just celebrated our 120 fifth anniversary the, the Penn Newman Club was actually the first in America and one thing we, we looked at the, the history of Newman centers like has always been that you know sort of dynamic of hand to mouth and uh, I think that you know the institutions of Catholic grade schools and high schools and parishes uh, it's, it's a wider support system than have existed for these uh, groups so it's, I think it's been always like kind of appealing to bishops to be able to support but like as many of our archdioceses are not in the best shape financially, more and more, I think even into the future, Newman centers like ourselves are going to need to rely on a healthy development team. So we in the last five years have, have been able to build up a development team and, and gradually kind of increase our ability to engage our alumni. There, there's certainly a lot of you know people that have a natural connection. Maybe their lives were benefited while they were on campus. So those are the first people that we try to reach out to and, and encourage them to see themselves as stewards of our ministry and it really is fundraising is, is a ministry in and of itself allowing for people to to give back in that way but i, I encourage all people uh, i mean i think it's it's on places like ourselves to get the word out to let let people know about the good news and and make it easy for people to know how they can support us but yeah certainly wherever people are at there's a newman center around you like i would really encourage you to consider you know like uh being finding a way to to support it if, if people have the the ability well, I can attest to the fact uh, that as I've seen the last three years of my son's college life, that the the, the impact is tremendous and, and maybe life-saving, I have to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yeah. Certainly soul-saving, but maybe life-saving too. Now, both of you are are members of the Sodality of Christian Life. Uh, Patrick, mm-hmm. you're a lay, you're a consecrated layman, and Father is a priest of the Sodality. Father, I wanted to, I, I thought you might want to share your your uh, the story of um, when you were uh, made a priest, uh, which wasn't so long ago, and it's such a pretty story. Mm-hmm. I thought our listeners might want to hear it. You want that intimate story? No, oh, well, <laughs> it's such a it's such an interesting uh, who how it happened and and where it happened and who who uh, who did it. So it was in 2019, August 2019. <clears throat> it was in the day of the Assumption, the Solemnity of the Assumption. I was ordained and. I mean, the beautiful story was, um, I think you mean the, the, the Archbishop Caput, his words in the homily, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, it was, I mean, a, a, day, a week before my ordination, my spiritual director asked me to meditate on the relationship between the Assumption of Mary and the priesthood. So that was my homework during my silent retreat. After three, four days of silence, I was not getting a connection between both. So I stopped and said, okay, I'm going to go back to one of the passages that touched my life when I was starting my, 20 years ago, my religious life. It was John 14, when when Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house. Do not be troubled. Do not be afraid. I'm going to prepare a place for each one of you so that you can always be with me. So I was so moving that opened my heart and I started, I became very, very emotional, very deeply moved by the Holy Spirit. And then I came back to my homework, looking for this connecting assumption and priesthood that I'm not finding too much. Then a week later, in the homily, during the ordination, um, Archbishop Chaput starts saying, well, you know, 
mm, I don't think the church has chosen the best passage for this solemnity because the church chose the Magnificat, not the visitation of Mary to Elizabeth, but I don't think that's the proper one. And then he says, the best one I think is the, is the Last Supper. Is Jesus saying in John 14, I'm, do not be afraid. I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for each one of you. And I was, what? This is incredible. <laughs> I felt like somebody was looking at me the whole time in, in my retreat. And then I, I thought, like, how are you going to explain this? Because I've never thought about it. And then he said, yes, of course, if Jesus is going to his father, to whom do you think is going to prepare a place? The first person for whom he's going to prepare a place in the house of the father, his blessed mother. Absolutely. <laughs> and then he turned to me and said, now, Remy, your mission as a priesthood will have will be to help Jesus to to, to country thirst for souls and to take people into this, into their place prepared in the house of the father. So that was amazing. That was beautiful. <laughs> That's wonderful. That was the Holy Spirit preparing you for that, that perfect moment of your ordination. Yeah, incredible. Yes, it's like, yeah, it's a, as an affirmation, it's a guarantee that Jesus is, God is behind. Everyone who, everyone who feels this kind of longing or a vocation, the Holy Spirit is acting within. We have to trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you must feel you must feel that a lot when you work with young people, the movement of the Holy Spirit uh, in their lives. It must be very powerful. Yes, it is. And I think, we have to be very attentive in, to the souls to see what are signs of joy, hope, strength, to see what comes from God and, not, and what, what is not. So, yeah, the spiritual discernment, being very attentive to others. Well, the students at Drexel and at the University of Pennsylvania are very fortunate to have both of you, Patrick and Father Remy, I, I know from personal experience and uh, also from listening to, to both of you and this tremendous uh, joy and, and excitement that you bring to your important work. So thank you very much for doing this, this lovely work, and also for joining us on Conversations with Consequences. We will keep you and the students in our prayers. Thank you very much, Dr. Casey. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're on EWTN Radio. I'm really happy to introduce Elizabeth Kirk. She's a lawyer and adoptive mother of four to talk to us about National Foster Care Month and what we can do to break the soft stigma surrounding adoption. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you. You're a person who is very much invested in foster care and adoption on a personal level as well as a professional level. How did how did this all happen for you? How did your interest in this bloom? Sure. You know, I would say it was one of those beautiful providential (laughs) confluence of things throughout my life. You know, to start with, I'm an adopted person. I was adopted by my dad when I was three, when he married my mother. And so from my earliest days, you know, adoption was part of the fabric of family life for me. Um, And in particular, my dad's example of what it meant to welcome, you know, the stranger and treat them as your child, I think was just very normal for me. As a lawyer, I became interested in family law. And so that's always been part of my professional interest. And then as my husband and I married and, and, um, hoped to start a family, it eventually became clear that adoption was something that we felt we had a vocation to. And so we wel- we've welcomed four children through adoption, three privately. We adopted them at birth and um, our fourth little guy we adopted from foster care. So Elizabeth, you and I were, well, I was anyway, lucky enough to live in the same place with you when we were both going through our adoptions, at least um, some yeah. of them. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, your experience adopting your first child? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you and, and Carter, your husband, were enormous influences and mentors to us as we went through that process. And I think that demonstrates how important it is for people considering adoption to, to have people to walk with them because it can seem really overwhelming and, and uh, you know, sort of intimidating in various ways um, from putting together that first um, profile letter that would be shown to, to prospective birth mothers who are considering you to um, waiting to be matched to, you know, once you're matched, waiting for the child to be born and then everything thereafter. So all of those walking alongside people pieces um, 
um, you and Carter did for us. We had a very whirlwind experience. We we were blessed to be matched with our first son um, within a few weeks of becoming active, which is what they describe when you have completed all of the home study and all the process you know necessary to become eligible to adopt. We were matched shortly thereafter, and then our son was born a few months later. So we didn't get the nine months to prepare for the baby <laughs> to to enter the home and all of that, but it was it was an enormous blessing after many years of praying that we we would start our family. What a wonderful thing that it happened so so well and so fast, Elizabeth. I also had that experience when I was adopting. There there were a couple people in in my life that were that for me that the person who walked with us mm-hmm. and encouraged us. They had already adopted, and I can't. I I think of them sometimes and. I'm so thankful that they were in my life because there were times in our adoption process when we were ready to give up because it was for lots of reasons. It's adoption is is difficult. And if you're not in an area where there's a lot of adoption culture, you don't have a lot of people uh, encouraging you and giving you that, you know, that listening ear and maybe some of their own experience to make the path seem more clear. It's very easy to desist. Yeah, I mean, for us, that was absolutely really critical. Lee and Carter adopted a few years before we welcomed our first, and so their example was really critical for us. And we have tried to to pass that, you know, to pay that forward by serving as mentors for other families considering adoption, not all of whom decide to pursue it, but, you know, as they're trying to figure out whether they're called to it. Also, you know, helping to just walk with women who are trying to decide whether adoption is the right decision for them in terms of their own pregnancy mm-hmm. um, you know so just to give them a, a snapshot of like well this is what adoption really looks like because so few people really have an accurate understanding of, of what adoption is um, I've, I've, yeah. this reminds me of something that's been called the soft stigma of adoption mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. there is an, an idea that adoption is always a last resort that adoption could even be a last resort after abortion for a woman who's un, uh, you know who's expecting a child she doesn't <clears throat> think she can care for have you found that that's true have you found that is there, that there's something you can do to fight that soft stigma yes I mean this is actually the, sort of the heart of, of my work um, is is describing and, and trying to to think of ways to counter the soft stigma. I, I don't think there's any doubt that there is one. I mean, it, and by soft, what, what I think people mean by that is that, of course, adoption is something most people think is very beautiful, right? When you talk about it, and my husband and I say, "Oh, we adopted children." They people yes, say, "Everybody, oh, that's so wonderful!" <laughs> and you know, you're so you're so generous, yeah. you're so noble, that's my right? Favorite. All right, exactly. And but when it comes to it, whether it, it's them pursuing adoption as a way of building a family or whether it's a response to a crisis pregnancy, it really is the last choice. And with respect to abortion, the numbers tell us that for every 50 abortions, there's only one newborn placed for adoption. So it absolutely is the, it's not even statistically a choice. If parenting is off the table, most women choose adopt, uh, choose abortion, excuse me. So I think there certainly is a stigma against it. There's a lot of things that I think account for that that are quite complicated. But I think things that we can do uh, to counter that stig- stigma are the kinds of things we're doing right now, having honest conversations that that recognize, you know, the challenges of adoption, but also celebrate the beauty of it. I think there are things we can do in law and in policy, in education, in all various areas uh, to promote a healthier, positive culture of adoption. Elizabeth, in that piece you write about the soft stigma in the Institute Mm -hmm. for Family Studies journal from a couple years ago, there's a quote that I just love. In all that we do to research and understand adoption, our focus ought to be on the needs of the child and how we can best respond to those needs in love rather than from fear. And Mm -hmm. that really points to the soft stigma that potential adoptive parents hold against the idea of adoption and that somehow if you have complete control over your own biological progeny. And Mm -hmm. you point also to the fact in that article that, you know, that brokenness exists in the human condition. I mean, we're post-fall. And so how do you think we can 
break through to those parents who are, maybe this isn't the best way, but I have heard actually people say worried about what they're going to get. Yeah, that's that's a really tough, you know, attitude to, to crack. But again, I mean, I think conversations like this are really important. I think just the lived witness, mm-hmm. Gracie, you described, you know, communities that don't have a strong culture of adoption. I mean, I think that's really sad because then it's very difficult. You know, we always fear what we don't know mm-hmm. or understand. And I, you know, I think parents do fear you know, what they're going to get. Any biological parents of a biological child will tell you that it's, there's no, con- you know, accounting for what you might get in, so true. in that way anyway. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think another thing to kind of keep in mind is you sort of have to reorient what parenting is. I mean, so many people understandably if if they have not been able to have children especially are thinking of adoption as sort of adult oriented right like I want a child yes but that's not what parenting is in any case biological or adoptive or you know parenting is about giving of yourself to another and uh, for that person's benefit so it really doesn't have to do with what you're going to get out of it that's a tough mental uh, switch for many people to make but I think that's really at the heart of it mm-hmm. Adoption is other-centered, properly understood. I believe adoption, properly understood, is always centered on the needs of children that either Mm -hmm. exist biologically inside their mothers already or maybe in an orphanage, in the case of my daughter, whom we adopted. But it's very common in this day and age to see children as products, uh, as consumer products, you know, something that, and it's sad because it has to do a lot with uh, the assisted reproductive technologies and the fact that people can make children to order as to a certain extent, to a great extent, uh, a greater extent every year. And I think it's, uh, we're falling, too many of us fall into that trap of thinking of children as something that completes us instead of children as blessings in themselves, as not a means to an end, not, not a means to a to the end of our own flourishing but as themselves these uh, delightful gifts from God who are full of the dignity that will flourish if, if given the love of their parents or of parents that can be found for them to love them yes and I think you know sometimes it just really involves a kind of subtle shift in thinking because you know for example in our case infertility was the occasion for us to realize our vocation to adoption and so in that sense it you know john paul calls adoption uh an exchange of gifts and and so it's not that consumer exchange that you're talking about gracie Mm -hmm. it's it's this much you know richer deeper but it is something that blesses all the parties and so it Mm -hmm. is the case of course that my husband and i were blessed to build a family which we had been unable to do um through adoption but it's something as you say it's ordered towards the good of the child and it's something that um you know, through your circumstances, you may realize you're called to it, but you, in that call, you recognize something much deeper. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague, Lee Sneed, and we are talking about foster care and adoption. May is foster care month, as well as being the month of Mary, which I think is maybe not uh, a coincidence. It's, of course... The greatest adoption ever, no, is uh, is the adoption yeah. of, of all of us as children of God. And it's something that then we can turn around and do if, if we are so blessed as to be adoptive moms like the three of us. Elizabeth, many people listening might not have the option or the resources or even some of the knowledge they need to, in order to become a foster parent. But of course, the foster crisis is in the news all the time. And many people think it you know, requires a commitment of days, weeks, maybe even months, years in some cases. So can you tell us a little bit about what respite care is and who it helps and how it helps them? Yeah, no, you raised a really good question, um, which is, you know, what what can anybody do, right? Not just those mm-hmm. who have this call I was mentioning earlier, but what can anybody do to help um, what, what I think is the modern orphan, right? The child languishing in foster care, the child at risk of abortion. Um, what are ways anyone can help? And you mentioned one of them, which is respite care, which is basically just <laughs> what all of us sort of count on our friends and family to do, which is to help us out now and then by taking our children for the weekend or overnight or even just for the afternoon um, so that we can get a little break, right? And mm-hmm. so this is a way, now it, it is the case, I mean, this varies by state and different agencies have different policies, but it is the case in order to be a respite care provider, you do have to be trained and, and 
licensed, perhaps not to the same extent as foster parents, but um, it's not without its own training. Um, But for many people, it's a sort of lower commitment way, if I can put it that way, to to contribute without kind of full-on welcoming a child into your home. Um, 24-7, and it, it provides a great need for foster parents who, who do need a break. But there are many, many other ways, even, you know, if, if even the training required for respite care doesn't seem uh, like something that you have the capacity for. Many, many organizations exist to wrap around foster families by providing meals or um, tutoring for teenagers or um, there's a there's an organization called Care Portal where you can just enter your zip code and you can see what the material needs of families in your fa- in your area are. Yeah, um, yeah. So I could go on and on, but there are lots right. of ways to get involved short of becoming a foster care parent. What a good idea, Elizabeth! Uh, it is wonderful to think that you can, even if you can't be. The, the foster parent or be the adoptive parent, you can help someone else. So what was that called? Portal Care? Uh, Care Portal is the, the name of, but, but as I say, there are many, that, that's focused on providing material needs to, to families in your community. But as I say, there are many, many organizations around the country that are doing this wraparound care. Now, Elizabeth, you're not only um, an adoptive mother, but you're also an attorney. And we are quickly approaching the summer months. And sometime during the summer, we we think that the Supreme Court is going to hear a very important case regarding the fate of foster care in Philadelphia, which will then, of course, you know, devolve across all the country and, and, and shake things up depending on what happens. Um, mm-hmm. So that case, to, to give uh, our listeners a brief uh, reminder of what it is, is that Catholic Social Services in, in Philadelphia were were under threat from the city for not opening their doors to same-sex couples. So what's going on in that case, and what are the implications of of results when when it's finally heard? Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, all all of us lawyers are anxiously looking at 10 a.m. on Mondays to see see if the (laughs) Supreme Court has released its decision, uh, which they will do sometime between now and June. But in that case, as you said, Philly, the Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia, which serves children in need regardless of their background, their race, their religion, their sexual orientation, their contract was not renewed unless Catholic Social Services would abandon its religious commitment to placing children with with married couples, married mothers and fathers. And so in response, several foster moms who had been fostering between them for like over 50 years, you know, challenged the the city's exclusion. And as you say, it's gone to the Supreme Court. And it's really significant, um, first and foremost, for foster care agencies like Catholic Social Services. So, you know, can they continue to serve as they've done really for centuries in this country without abandoning their religious beliefs. We've seen other places like Illinois and Boston and um, Washington, D.C., where Catholic social services have closed rather than abandon their beliefs. So this will be a good opportunity for the court to clarify, you know, that religious liberty isn't just about private belief, but it's about practicing your belief in the public square. But Elizabeth, do you feel yeah. hopeful? Mm-hmm. What do you What are you expecting to happen or you don't feel comfortable even hazarding a guess? No, I mean, I'm not in the business of, of predict- predictions. Um, I, I am hopeful. I mean, I, I think it's a I think it's a strong case, and I, I do think um, that there's a strong argument here to protect faith-based organizations. To be honest, although I would be, you know, deeply disappointed if, if we lose, I think there's still ways in which people of faith can can continue to serve children even if we lose this important institutional capacity to work in child welfare. Yes, because it's true, right, that a lot of Catholic charities organizations used to do adoptions, but they just they they don't anymore because the need was too great and their resources were too little. And because of the foster crisis, we really are in an all hands on deck situation. And so, will you clarify for some listeners, I think that some people maybe believe that there will be some negative impact on those foster agencies that do serve every kind of family if Catholic organizations are allowed to, you know, place according to their uh, deeply held beliefs. Sure. I, I'm, I think, yeah, I mean, that's an important distinction, which is to say that this case doesn't mean that, for example, same-sex couples can't adopt. You know, if the court were to rule in favor of Catholic social services, um, it doesn't mean that same-sex couples can't adopt. Um, there are many organizations, private organizations, that serve same-sex couples exclusively, for example, as well as the state itself um, will place children with any licensed uh, family. So really, this is just limited to the question 
of whether faith-based organizations have to abandon their religious beliefs in order to continue serving in the child welfare system. When I hear about this, these restrictions by a Catholic agency, for instance, and not wanting to place a child with a same-sex couple, it to me, it's not surprising at all. Even if you look at it out from outside a religious perspective, when I was adopting from China, China has very stringent ideas about who should be able to adopt. It's always has to be that I mean, they wouldn't adopt to a same-sex couple, and not because they have any religious qualms, but because because they feel that every child should have, ideally, a father and a mother. I'm so glad you brought that up, because I think that is such an important point. We get really focused on the religious freedom argument, and we sort of sometimes don't defend strongly enough that this belief that we have, it's not some thinly disguised excuse for discriminating or being bigots or something horrible like that. It's faith-based organizations are motivated by their beliefs because they think they're good, right? They think that these beliefs about marriage or the human person or about the connection between sex and children, all these things, they think these are good for the human person. And so this, when they're serving children, they want to give them the best that they can. And so I don't think we should be defensive about those beliefs or continually just fall back on religious freedom arguments. Well, Elizabeth, we're out of time, but I want to really thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's so wonderful to speak to somebody, well, the three of us, with, with so much love for adoption and the blessings that it confers on everybody involved. So thank you very much for joining us. Find Elizabeth Kirk at the Catholic University of America by visiting law.edu. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday. I should probably say conversations, since depending upon where you live in the United States, you will have one of two Gospels. Those in New England, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Nebraska will have the Gospel of the Seventh Sunday of Easter. Those everywhere else will have the gospel of the ascension of the Lord Jesus, since the bishops in those ecclesiastical provinces decided in 1998-99 to transfer the ascension from the 40th day after Easter to the seventh Sunday. They did so because they recognized that if they didn't, Catholics who don't attend Holy Days of Obligation would always miss this liturgical celebration of this key event in the Lord's life. Ironically, however, in making that decision to move the ascension to the 43rd day after Easter, the bishops in those provinces were eliminating that Catholics would hear Jesus' words on the importance of Christian unity from the 17th chapter of St. John's Gospel, a third of which is proclaimed on the seventh Sunday each year. That Catholics in the U.S. do not have unity with regard to the celebration of the Solemnity of the Ascension is unfortunate. And I would urge that just as the Church is praying for unity be, to be restored to the celebration of Easter between Catholics and Orthodox, so we might pray and speak to our bishops about restoring unity on the celebration of the Ascension on the 40th day. But since there is not unity, please permit me to say something about both Gospels. Conscious of the fact that since Jesus is our interlocutor in every prayerful and consequential liturgical conversation, everything is intrinsically coherent. We'll take the Gospel for the seventh Sunday of Easter first, since it happened first in time. In it, we have the awesome privilege not only to eavesdrop on the extraordinarily rich interpersonal dialogue Jesus had with God the Father the night he was betrayed, but to enter into that conversation. In the section we have this year, Jesus mentions five things. He prays first that God the Father would protect us, that we may have true unity in communion, just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. A little later, Jesus asked the Father specifically to keep us from the evil one. Point is that the devil constantly seeks to divide us, whereas God wants to bring us into true communion with him and each other. Any of us who really believes in Jesus, who loves him, must pray and work for unity. The fact that Christians as a whole have been divided by so many schisms across the centuries, the fact that even Catholics are often divided into ideological camps today, is a great scandal one that Jesus wants us to help him remedy. The second thing Jesus prays for is that we may share his joy completely. Jesus came so that his joy might be in us and our joy be made complete. The Easter season is meant to help us focus specifically on that joy, the joy that flows from God's love, from his continuous presence, and from his triumph over sin and death. If we don't live the Christian faith with joy, we risk making the good news seem like a lie. The third thing Jesus mentions is that the world will hate us just like it hated him 
but that we don't belong to the world any more than he belonged to the world. We belong rather to God. Many times in the gospel, Jesus promised us that we would be hated by those who don't want to believe, love, and follow God. That what people did to him, they would try to do to us. He said God would permit this, just like God the Father permitted it to happen to him, so that we would be able to give witness to God. At the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people hate you, revile you, and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me, for your reward will be great in heaven. This hatred we suffer from others is not strong enough to take away our unity or negate the Father's protection or rob us of our joy. It only will if we fear that hatred from others more than we trust in the loving presence of God. The fourth thing is that Jesus asked the Father to consecrate us in the truth, adding that he himself has consecrated himself so that we may precisely be consecrated in truth. To be consecrated means literally to be cut off. That's sachir, in order to be with, con, some other reality. So consecration means with someone who has been cut off from others. In consecrating us, God sets us apart. He cuts us off from worldliness, from the profane, so that we can be with him. Consecration is a sacred dedication which we transfer our belonging, like the title of the ownership of our life, totally to God. It's like the covenants of the Old Testament in which... God becomes our God and we become his people, the sheep of his flock. God does this to us first in baptism, which were marked by a special seal of belonging that can never be erased. He does so also, as Jesus says in this Sunday's passage, by his word, which is meant like a double-edged sword to prune us of anything that doesn't belong to God. Do we live this sense of belonging, though? That we belong to God, for example, more than the most loving husbands and wives belong to each other. God wants to help us live that reality. And all four of these points culminate in mission. Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, Father, so I send them into the world. Being set apart to belong to God, we now share Christ's mission. Just as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. He sends us consecrated in the truth that sets us free, as messengers of the words of eternal life. He prepares us for the opposition we'll receive from some, just like the apostles and missionaries in every age have endured, but likewise promises the Holy Spirit will help us in trial to give witness to him. He sends us his joyful messengers of challenging proposals, as Pope Francis likes to stress. He sends us out united, seeking to bring others into community, into communion. Jesus says in next year's portion of John 17, that he wants us to be one so that the world may believe that you, Father, sent me and love them just as much as you love me. To help others believe in Jesus and in the love God has for us, we must evince that love and faith toward each other. That's what the gospel for the seventh Sunday of Easter is all about. If we turn to the gospel of the church proclaims this year on the Ascension, which took place 43 days after Jesus' words in the upper room, we see how Jesus essentially reiterates what he said in John 17. He tells us, Go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized, whoever, in other words, accept the gifts of consecration, will be saved. He mentions the opposition we'll get from demons, serpents, even others who will seek to poison us, so that we won't be afraid of any deadly thing. And we see how the apostles respond to Jesus' valedictory as he ascends to heaven by going forth and preaching everywhere, while St. Mark tells us the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word through accompanying signs. Those signs were not just physical healings and other powerful miracles. They were the compelling signs of Christian joy, unity, and courage in the face of threats. They were the witness of their belonging to God, their consecration within Christ's consecration, that no intimidation, not even torture, could sever. And we're Christians today because of the way they responded to Jesus' words in the upper room and Jesus' words before he was taken to heaven. So we prepare for the gift of Sunday Mass, no matter what gospel we'll hear. We give God thanks that his prayer during the first Mass on Holy Thursday and his great commission have no expiration date. We ask the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus ascended to heaven, to send down to us, will help us to respond to Jesus' words as faithfully as his first followers did, so that great multitudes after us, just like we after them, may hear and live Jesus' life-saving, joy-filling words. God bless you.
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 